the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at the huge issue of climate change, and specifically the carbon budgets published earlier this week by the Climate Change Advisory Council. The council has outlined a plan to reduce the state's carbon emissions by a staggering 51% by 2030. So is this target feasible? What will it cost? How will it impact on families and businesses? And what happens if we don't meet these targets? To help me answer these and other questions, I'm joined on the line now by Cliff Taylor and Kevin O'Sullivan of the Irish Times, who'll be leading our coverage on this major topic. Uh, Cliff Taylor, maybe you could just start us off by taking us through the main measures which are outlined in the Climate Change Advisory Council's budgets. Yeah, the job of the, the statutory job of the Climate Change Advisory Council was to recommend carbon budgets for the next, uh, up, to, up to 2030 and, and a, a uh, outline budget for the following five years to try and get us towards this target of um, <clears throat> reducing emissions by uh, by 50% uh, by 2030 over 2018 levels and moving to carbon neutrality by 2015. So if you like, this is the high level, uh, these are the high level targets that they have calculated using all the science at their disposal that Ireland needs to meet uh, to, uh, to to set it on, on its path towards its climate goals. Now, what they came up with was uh, two budgets, one running to 2025, so the years 2021 to 2025. Of course, 2021 is nearly over at the moment. And the second then, 2026 to 2030. Uh, and they reckon that to uh, set us on the right path, we need to be reducing emissions by around 4.8% a year up to 2025, and then over 8% a year uh, up to 2030. Uh, the reason why the higher figure is in the later period is there are, there are investments that are going to need to be made, particularly in areas like energy. In the first few years, uh, wind energy, for example, being 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 the most obvious example, perhaps, where uh, a lot of investment is going to be needed, a lot of planning is going to be needed, it's going to take time. So there's a transition in that area. But nonetheless, uh, even though the targets for the next few years are, are lower than the 7% that was in the programme for government, uh, it's still obvious they're going to be a real stretch because uh, we saw from figures produced last week by the Environmental Protection Agency that even when the economy was closed down uh, in 2020, uh, emissions still only fell by 3.6%. Uh, and it's a fair bet now that the economy is operating again and car the M50s full of cars again, uh, that emissions are are, are well, at best flat and probably, probably may rise again this year. I, I don't know what what the balance will be, but nonetheless, the targets of a 4.8% reduction per year up to 2025 are, are going to be a stretch. So what's going to happen next? The government's going to publish its climate action plan, its revised climate action plan. And as part of that, it's going to agree on how the um, these targets that have been set, set by the Climate Change Advisory Council are going to break down sector by sector. So they're going to say agriculture has to reduce by this, industry by that, the energy sector by... By, by another. So it, it really, uh, I suppose it does force the government's hand because they now have a, there's a binding constraint there and the binding constraint there is they have to put forward a plan that meets the EPA targets, or sorry, it meets the Climate Change Advisory Council targets. So that, for example, there's been a lot of argument from the agriculture sector over the last few days that its targets should be should be lower than the average. Uh, and, you know, there's an argument to be made for, for, for that. 
But the flip side of that is if the agriculture targets are set too low, then the targets in other sectors uh, will have to be kind of at unfeasibly high levels to get us towards the targets, uh, the overall the overall targets. So it's a really difficult one, I think, for the government. And it's going to be very interesting politically to see how they handle this over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you might have said 2015 earlier for the, the net zero emissions. It's 2050, of course. Apologies. And um, Kevin O'Sullivan might bring you in on this point. Um, what does a 4.8% reduction, let's say next year, what would that look like in terms of car journeys, uh, air travel, um, farming emissions, energy output, etc.? Well, carbon budgets will, by their nature, impose discipline across all sectors. So every sector will have to do its bit. So that's that's what it will translate into. We don't know exactly what it will mean in terms of car journeys or, or agriculture or carbon intensive energy manufacturing, um, because the, as Cliff has said, the, the sectoral ceilings haven't yet been set, but we we know the the direction of travel, and um, so some some sectors are in a better place already to to take more substantial cuts, and and power generation is the obvious one, and electri- electrification will be critical to the to the new green economy. So the, the the onus on on that sector is particularly demanding. In effect, they will have to reduce their emissions by in excess of seventy percent over the over the decade to enable others to to reduce emissions in their own sector by switching from fossil fuels uh, to renewables. But it's very hard to give an exact indication on, on, on what activity will be affected. It's very clear from what, what we have been saying in, in recent days, um, and particularly the analysis from Cliff, that it will have a huge impact on everybody. Um, and then when you factor in the effects of the the carbon tax that are going to rise continually over the next decade, the cost will be uh, pretty significant. And that's why you have this great realisation at the moment across individual sectors that, that the, the rubber is, is uh, hitting the road now. And, and it's very clear that significant decarbonisation has to take place. Sure. Um, Cliff mentioned that our carbon emissions went down last year. And because of the lockdown restrictions put in place uh, for the pandemic, what, what was the what was the figure, um, Kevin? The overall figure was a decline of just three point six percent, which was pretty poor, to be honest with you. Uh, across the world, some countries have achieved a reduction of six seven percent on average. So Ireland is not performing well, and this is despite the fact that that in effect the economy was in lockdown for most of the year. So that was particularly true in the case of of travel, whether it's car use, public transport, mm. or aviation. Um, so, as the economy rebounds, it's very clear that those emissions will continue uh, to rise, and particularly in Ireland because we have a very car dependent society. So it's it's not very good. And then you 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 factor in the increase in in agriculture emissions, which the EPA has attributed largely to expansion and dairying. So they're the two areas that are really worrying because we're supposed to be on a path this year. The, the first budget starts from 2021, as Cliff has outlined, where we're supposed to be in a decline situation overall. And very worryingly at the moment, we don't even know when overall emissions are likely to decline. It's probably going to be near 2025, I would say, we're, if 23, 23, if we're lucky, 
um, but there's there's not enough momentum at the moment to to force the emissions down. Yeah, so we were down less than four percent last year, in spite of the fact that most of the economy was locked down for the guts of nine months of the year. Um, agriculture was probably outside of that lockdown, largely speaking, and I know exports uh, continued on their on their merry way, but. For the most part, um, we were locked down for nine months. So what are the chances, uh, Cliff, maybe this is one for you, what are the chances of a 4.8% reduction per year out to 2025 and 8.3% beyond that? You know, twice twice the reduction we achieved last year by having the economy locked down. Yeah, I mean, I think as Kevin has said, it's it's a big ask. Uh, And if you look at what happened um, last year in 2020, I suppose it does give us some pointers to where the, you know the issues are, as Kevin said, one is one is one is agriculture and uh, the size of the dairy herd, and I suppose the beef herd as well. And that's going to be, I think, a big issue now over the next next few weeks <clears throat> as the government sets its targets and the implications of that are start to come into view. The other is, I, I guess, the way people heat their homes. Uh, one of the issues last year was that people obviously spent a lot more time at home; uh, they weren't in work, uh, so household emissions went up. Uh, and one of the difficulties that we have is that the way uh, the way we heat our homes, the reliance on fossil fuels, uh, is is one of the big issues as well in terms of emissions. So so these are to address these things. You know, huge investment, huge investment is needed. If you look at the household sector, you're talking about retrofitting. The um, Climate Council reckon we needed to get six hundred thousand houses done uh, by 2030, um, which is which would be a massive task given the uh, the house building that has to be done as well and the number of people that we would be required to do that. Uh, and we'd have to work out how that would be paid for. Uh, there's the issue of agriculture and then there's the issue of of transport, uh, which I think is the other one that the government is 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 worried about, uh, is concerned about the political implications of uh, at a at a national level, big investment in public transport. And at a household level, the necessity for this huge move to uh, to electric vehicles uh, at a much faster rate that, that that has been happening, and how and how on earth we're going to achieve that? I suppose the flip side is, though, we tend to look at the costs of all this. But you know, if you turn it on its head and say, well, the cost of inaction globally is so enormous that you know, while there is a, a short term economic cost to this, the, the cost of inaction globally is is uh, you know is unimaginable for for economies for health. For societies. On that point, Cliff, Hillary Clinton uh, was on the BBC at the weekend on the Andrew Marr show, uh, and she was questioning the commitment and the leadership being shown by the likes of China, Russia, and India uh, to reducing carbon emissions. Uh, and I think we know that Putin from Russia, for example, won't be at uh, the COP26 event in Glasgow, and I don't think Xi from China will be there either. So, uh, on that point, I mean, we're a small country in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and if China, Russia, and India don't put their shoulder to the wheel, then you know we're whistling in the wind, aren't we? Is she right? Well, I, I guess she is. In you know, in the sense that everyone, if everyone isn't signed up to this, then it's not going to happen. Uh, and I think this kind of you might call it what about her is going to be is going to be part of the debate here. So people are going to be saying that you know, what about China? What about Russia? Why are we bothering if these big countries aren't? Because what we're going to do isn't going to make any difference. And they're also going to be pointing the finger from one sector to another. You know, why, why, why am I being asked to do this while the other sector is still continuing to pump out emissions or whatever? But, I mean, if we all don't jump together on this, uh, if, the national, if the international community doesn't um, 
reach some agreement for, for everyone to jump together on this, or for most countries to jump together on this at, at this big COP uh, summit uh, over the next couple of weeks, then you know we are going to be in trouble. Uh, we've had so many warnings now of, of the consequences of this. Uh, we've seen it already in weather events. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, if a move isn't made globally in the next few years, then, you know, we're just, it's just going to be impossible to catch up. So uh, it is, that does make it politically, I think, difficult uh, for, for, for the Irish government and for, for, for every other government as well. But nonetheless, the, the fact of it is that if we don't move, um, then, then we're in trouble. And I think there possibly is another economic issue for Ireland as well, which is that th- there must be advantages to us here of being green, being seen to be green in terms of attracting investment and in terms of selling goods overseas. Uh, because this is a huge factor now for uh, for big companies. It's a huge factor for investors, uh, th- this whole sustainability uh, and green agenda. Uh, and it's increasingly a huge factor for consumers as well. So I think, you know, while there are costs here, there are also, you know, hard to put your finger on the extent of them, but, but strategic advantages for Ireland in getting ahead of this game, because if we're going to do it, we might as well, we might as well get on and do it and, and take the advantage of being an early mover. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Kevin, um, Cliff mentioned the investment that we need to make in wind energy as a renewable source um, for power in the future. I was driving to Kerry recently, and if you drive through the Midlands, there's a very big wind farm. Anybody who drives the road sort of via Limerick, there's a very big wind farm on the right-hand side. I'm not sure precisely of the location, but obviously there wasn't a puff of wind uh, outside because none of the blades on this um, very large wind farm, none of the blades were moving. They were all standing still. Uh, and we've seen, I, I, you know, I think we know from uh, recent commentary and, and debate that we're not getting the, the level of power from wind, uh, or we haven't been in recent uh, weeks and months anyway, that, that was expected because wind patterns uh, seem to have changed. Yeah, we've, we've had a really unusual year uh, in terms of wind and right up to September, um, it was really calm and the return from wind was quite poor and that has fed into the whole gas crisis, uh, gas price crisis and, and supply issues as well. Um, but interestingly, over the last week, uh, wind generation is probably up around 40 to 50% of power generation in Ireland. So it just underlines the potential. The other factor is that if we scale up offshore, the the the, the the supply is likely to be more consistent because of, of more exposed conditions, particularly off the West Coast. So that's that's the prize there. And we have an uh, unprecedented uh, opportunity there and uh, the ability to co- compete with the big offshore players in Scandinavia and in Scotland, provided we can get it right and, and secure approval in, a, in an efficient way. So uh, I wouldn't worry about wind's ability to deliver um, but work has to happen on the intermi- intermittency problem. In other words, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So battery technology is scaling up and I think it will 
over the next 10 years fill that gap. So it will enable a scenario where on the national grid you, you would be able to accommodate close to 100% renewables and then secure your energy supply and not be exposed to, to massive price fluctuations. But we're not there yet and um, we still need to uh, improve our approval process and improve the auction system uh, for contracts uh, to, to developers and to be able to deliver infrastructure in a much quicker and efficient way. Um, so obviously there are implications for the planning system and legislation to facilitate improvement, particularly marine planning legislation, is due to be agreed in coming months, and that, that's long overdue. But I think it's very clear that wind generation can really be the key element in terms of solving Ireland's climate issues and and fulfilling its obligations um and that that you know that that is that is very clear now but unfortunately it'll be, it'll be the 2030s before we really realize that potential fully cliff the other thing that strikes me is uh the, this switch to electric vehicles which uh, needs to happen and by i think by 2030 um you're not going to be able to to buy a diesel or a petrol fueled um car anymore They'll all be EVs. But I was talking to the head of Maxall recently, and he made the point that they have 120 company-owned sites. And it'll probably cost about $90 million to um, gear them up for fast chargers so that people can pull in and charge up their electric vehicles and kind of do it in a timely way so they're not sitting around um, half the day. And he was making the point that uh, on every site they're going to need uh, an ESP substation and a substantial amount of cabling. And this is going to require a huge investment from the government and a huge investment from ESB. And it's going to require a big investment in grid capacity because obviously this is going to draw a huge load, presumably, off, off the grid. So good on the one hand that we're getting rid of fossil fuels maybe down the road. But on the other hand, we're going to have to, it seems we're going to have to really invest an awful lot of money in our grid system. And it's already creaking. So how, how likely uh, is it that we're going to be able to do this and do it within the time frame that's outlined? I think, as Kevin said, the, the potential is there, but the transition is clearly going to be difficult. Uh, and as he also pointed out, you know, the the centre of this uh, whole transition is is the greater use of electricity and across a whole range of sectors. And as you rightly say, to, for for that to happen, you've got to have the uh, you've got to have the supply on hand. Um, now, the climate report does refer in passing to the need for investment in, in charging and, and, and wider charging infrastructure. It doesn't go into it as far as I could see in, in, in great detail, though other people are starting to look at it. That's obviously been huge progress in the last few years. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, maybe 50,000 electric vehicles on the road at the moment. Uh, and it's a different scale of thing you're going to need if you've, at the end of the decade, you've got close to a million electric vehicles on the road. It's a whole it's a whole different ballgame then. So a massive transition and I think a big issue there, not only for uh for the grid and grid expansion, but for, for who's going to pay for this. Um so McKinsey did a study for the um for the Climate Change Council and they reckon that about half of the projects that are going to be needed uh, over the next ten years should be able to pay for themselves and another half will will need state subsidies. So in other words some will, some will, some will yield a commercial return, and some clearly won't. So people retrofitting their homes, for example, are clearly going to need a subsidy because the payoff for retrofitting your home versus the cost is, you know, many, many, many years. So people just aren't going to do it. But there are going to be a lot of projects in the middle. I, I suspect, like perhaps the, 
the remaking of petrol stations where the government is saying, well, if you guys want to get on board here with the new agenda, you're going to have to invest your money in uh, in charging infrastructure. And the petrol stations are saying, well, you know, we need we need supply and we need some state incentives to do this. So I think a lot of planning and a lot of work to go into that. Uh, and we're really only at the foothills of doing that at the moment. Possibly uh, lessons to be learned from uh, from Norway, uh, which has a very high proportion of electric vehicles. Uh, I'm not sure how they how they managed to roll out their infrastructure there, but it is the world leader. And uh, if we're looking for a place to draw lessons from in terms of electric vehicles and charging infrastructure and how to manage the whole thing, it strikes me that that is the place. Uh, that is the place that has managed it. Yeah, of course they had their. Ironically, they had their oil and gas revenues to pay for it, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I, I I heard it said that we have six and a half million cows in the country, uh, more cows than people, and the herd is going to have to be reduced if we're um, if, if we're to go some way towards meeting these um, targets. I, I think that's probably accepted by everybody. Has anybody done any? Has anybody done any calculation as to how many? cows uh, would be viable on the island, let's say, by 2030 if we're to meet our targets? Yeah, this week there's some really interesting analysis out by KPMG uh, for the Farmer's Journal, uh, which will be published tomorrow. And that really puts the figures on implications of, you know, if you have X percentage reduction of methane, what that means in terms of income. And um, obviously, the Climate Council has acknowledged a significant fall likely in farm income without new supports. So that that's a pretty grim prospect um, for for the farming sector. But I'm I'm sort of one of those. Maybe you accuse me of being naive, but I think the agri food industry has always shown a high degree of innovation, and farmers uh, have shown willingness to take on new technology and new options in terms of feed and grasslands. So I think with the right supports that that significant reductions in methane can be achieved, but it will require diversification of farming. And it's very clear that what the climate science is saying now, that you have to shift to more plant-based production uh, to fulfill that, that key target of uh, fulfilling the 1.5 degree limit under the Paris Agreement. So therefore, you have to enhance land's ability to store carbon as well. And obviously, farmers can play a key role there. So that that is another area where I think they will get more significant supports in, by way of of income for, for minding the land and, and, and sequestering carbon. But it's a very difficult area in the sense that methane is a super warming gas uh, and that that means it's uh, within a say ten years, it's eighty times more heating uh, in comparison to carbon dioxide. So you can see the problem. So you can see also the need to to really reduce it quickly and and get a quick win. So that 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 is where the focus is now. Ireland is supposedly backing a new pact between America and the EU, where they are agreeing to a thirty percent cut in methane. Uh, between now and 2030. So that 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 30% would have far-reaching consequences for Ireland. Now, I know some people are saying, oh, you just cut the, the methane associated with with fossil fuel production and, and you'll, you'll get a significant win. But it's clear agriculture is probably just as much responsible for methane production levels in the world. So you can't just say, uh, I, I won't have to do it if I'm involved in agriculture. So clearly because agriculture is so dominant in the Irish economy 
And it's currently generating probably in the order of 35, 36, 37% of our overall emissions. We can't just sit by and say, okay, we'll take a marginal cut in, in methane. So it's, it's a difficult time. It's a time, as Cliff has flagged, of great political uncertainty on this. And uh, I think farmers are very exercised at the moment. Rural Ireland is really worried. Uh, so it, it's going to be a tough time for the government in terms of how to negotiate that over the next few years. Cliff, what does the climate change agenda that exists now, what does it mean for globalisation in economic terms and this kind of coming together of um, economies around the world in a closer way? We're a small economy on the edge of Western Europe. Globalisation has really been very good for us broken down barriers, opened up opened up export markets for us, made it easy for us to deal with other uh, countries, and we've been quite nimble at it as well. But, you know, this climate change agenda is is potentially a game changer, isn't it? I mean, I, I heard on um, on a TV, uh, sorry, on a Virgin Media program last night, um, somebody grousing about uh, potatoes coming in from Egypt and uh, beef coming in from Brazil, etc. And yet we're, we're, you know, we're a huge exporter of food products. Yeah, and peat and peat being imported as well, uh, because we're not producing our own. So, yeah, I, I think local is local is going to have an advantage, isn't it, in uh, in the future? And it does strike me that that is going to be an issue an issue for small exporters like Ireland. So I suppose the only thing is to try and turn it to your advantage and say, okay, we're a, we're a small player. We don't need a huge share of any particular market, but we do need to maintain the share we have and. You would think that as climate targets are developed, they will also feed into trade agreements and trade practices, and that there will be account taken of of people who produce in a in a in a in a greener fashion, in a more sustainable fashion, and not only kind of informal structures that emerge from the COP summit or or afterwards, but also in terms of what consumers are looking for. Um, so that you know, if we're saying that our dairy products and our our beef are green, but the farming sector is in the in the firing line internationally for 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 being a big polluter. Then, um, you know, I'm not sure that's going to be a sustainable position in future. Not only from the point of view of consumers, but also from the point of view of the investors in our big dairy companies. I think we can't really overestimate the extent to which this ESG agenda, as it's called, sustainability green agenda, uh, environmental sustainability green agenda, in 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 business is now coming onto the table. It's a huge issue now for investors. It's a huge issue for boards. Investors are really worried about companies that are going to be caught on the wrong side of this over the next few years. And, and I think it's going to push boards to make really significant changes in, in the way they operate. And I think that's a big issue for a lot of Irish companies, big issue for the dairy companies who have kind of ridden the wave of an increased dairy herd in the last kind of 10 or 15 years, pushed into new markets. And I think, you know, they have some questions to, in terms of their strategy to look at now, uh, looking out over the next 10 or 15 years. So... I think there are challenges there, but the only thing, I guess, is to try and turn it to your advantage. But there are going to be winners and losers in that transition, and that's where the political difficulty is, I guess. Uh, Kevin, are there consequences for Ireland, financially or otherwise, uh, from not meeting the targets that have been set out? And if we don't get to net zero by 2050, uh, what are the implications for us as a country? Um, let's face it, we haven't been great at kind of meeting targets in the past that have been set, let's say, by the EU for this, that or the other. Yeah, there, there are very significant financial costs. And uh, already I, I would reckon that missing our 2020 targets um, on emissions 
probably has cost us several hundred million. You don't hear much publicity about that. Um, the, the only good indicator there is that that we we met our target for renewables on on the power grid, which was uh, you know which, which was a big global statement on behalf of Ireland, which was one very positive thing. So so that scenario will happen uh, in the next decade as well. And and if we don't miss if we do miss our targets, then the the costs will be significantly scaled up. But the overall question that you're asking me in terms of 2050, if we don't achieve climate neutrality by 2050, there's a very clear indication from the UN emissions gap report out today and yesterday that we are facing a scenario where the the average global temperature rise will be 2.7 degrees. And that is... Uh, that that makes for an unlivable planet, to be honest. And... Um, it, it means that catastrophic effects will occur. We won't be able to anticipate them. There's a, a risk that climate tipping points will be reached. So again, that this will have a cascading effect where extremes will, will hit all parts of the planet. And as the, the latest IPCC report in August has shown, no, no place on Earth is safe in that scenario. Okay, that's a pretty um, grim scenario. Let's, uh, let's maybe try and finish on a positive, if we can. Over to you, um, Cliff. <laughs> A lot of people are worried about the fact that they won't be able to take an awful lot of holidays overseas um, in, in the future. What's your view? Michael O'Leary doesn't buy into this, um, this thesis, but what's your view? Yeah, actually, uh, interestingly, international air travel isn't included in the, in the uh, climate calculations by the, uh, by the Climate Change Advisory Council. Um, it, it, not, not quite sure why, but it focuses on activity in the Irish economy. But yeah, I think, uh, I think we're going to... Ch- if we're going to make this transition, it's going to involve changing lifestyles. Uh, it's going to involve changes in our diet, uh, eating less meat and, and less dairy. It's going to involve changes in the way we we live at home. I mean, you're if you've a if you've an oil oil fired central heating system, uh, you know I think you'd be waving bye to that in the next kind of five or ten years. Uh, there'd be huge incentives to move to electric vehicles, and I think international travel is going to be part of that as well. Um, if carbon if the cost of carbon is properly priced and that has to be part of the transition, then that's going to push up the price of airfares very significantly. So, you know, a lot of people might have seen two, three, four overseas trips a year as normal. Maybe that becomes one or two now and maybe it moves out of the reach of people on on, on lower incomes, which, which is obviously going to be an issue. But uh, certainly I think if carbon is properly priced, then air travel is going to become a lot more expensive over the next five or ten years, even with... Uh, even with Michael O'Leary trying to push down prices. All right. It means fewer tourists into the country as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, you would thought so, particularly in terms of long-haul tourists. But um, and let's, not panic. let's not panic on it. You know, I think the goal is, is to, has to be to transition Ireland to a green, attractive place to visit um, and also maybe staycation as well. Uh, play up our advantages, try and make this transition, uh, try and sell ourselves as somewhere that has... Uh, you know that is doing the right thing. Like, there has to be, there has to be really big advantages if we can get that right. Very hard to put numbers on them, uh, but if there's, if everything is, if everything is about green, consumers hugely, hugely conscious of this now. There's got to be advantages in offering that. I, I think it, both to uh, both to tourists and to people buying Irish goods overseas. Okay, I think that's as close as we're going to get to a positive note on which I'm doing my uh, best here. <laughs> Cliff Taylor and Kevin O'Sullivan, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor and Kevin O'Sullivan. This week's show was produced by Suzanne Brennan. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. 
Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.